Scripture reading this evening will be taken from Genesis chapter 14, and I'll be reading verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Genesis 14, verse 13 to the end of the chapter, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt among the terebinth trees at Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And then the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlamor and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was the priest of God most high. And he blessed them and said, blessed be, blessed be Abram, the God of the most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God most high, who has delivered you from your enemy's hand. And he gave him a tithe of, of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing uh, from, from a thread to a, a sandal strap, and that I will, take, and I will not take anything that be yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Again, I apologize for there being no handouts tonight. Hopefully next week that won't be a problem. And after the uh, problems I had with my own PowerPoint this morning, I just decided today's a good day to make every service retro. So we're going no PowerPoint tonight either. With that being said, you, when you think of the greatest boxers of all time, who comes to mind? Some of, them, some of your list may include Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, among others. And for those of you who are old enough, you may recall that in 1971, they met in a, a boxing match that was dubbed the Fight of the Century. And in the lead-up to that match, as Muhammad Ali did with most of his fights, he was very descriptive in what he was going to, to do, and he was... Uh, very uh, um, outgoing with the, the media and, and gave great sound bites prior to his matches. Prior to the, the fight of the century, he had an interview with Life magazine. And at that time, he was a rather confident fighter, confident young man. And in this article, he said, he was quoted as saying, there seems to be some confusion. And we're going to clear this confusion up. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. Of course, Ali went on to lose that fight by a unanimous decision. But his comment's worth noting because the question of who is king is ultimately the question of the Bible. The whole of Scripture is aimed at proving who is king of kings. And the question of who is king is also at the center of the story we're going to study tonight in Genesis chapter 14, the story in the life 
of Abram. It's very interesting. In Genesis chapter 14, the first appearance of the word king in the Bible, right here in Genesis 14. And you know what's so fascinating? Is that shortly after the first appearance of the term king in the Bible is the first appearance of war in the Bible. Kings and war, they seem to go hand in hand to some degree. And that's only fitting because when we are trying to determine who is king, it comes at a battle. So tonight we're going to study Genesis chapter 14. And I want to give you the gist of the story instead of me trying to read through all these names over and over again. Let me give you the gist of the story. Here's what happens. Abram and Lot separated back in Genesis chapter 13. We talked about that last Sunday night. They went their separate raids because the land could not support all of their herds. So Lot choose, Abram lets Lot choose which land he wants to go to. Lot ends up choosing the land near Sodom, and he sets up his residence there, and, and life goes on. But sometime after Lot relocated to Sodom, Sodom found itself in the crosshairs of a foreign king. For several years, Sodom and its sister cities that were around it paid tribute to a king from the, the, from the, far, from the east. And, and they decided that they were tired of paying tribute. So in the 13th year after they started paying tribute, they stopped. Well, the king in the east got together a coalition of three other kings with him, and they decided to march their way over to Sodom and pay them a visit to collect their tribute. Well, the king of Sodom gathered his allies, four other kings that were in the area, and they went out and marched out to battle against those coalition of eastern kings, and they lost decisively. They fled on foot and went and hid in, in, in pits and caves. And as was the custom of that day, the kings from the east decided to go ransack the cities, take whatever provisions and, and whatever possessions they could find, take that back with them as spoils of war. But not only that, they took the people of Sodom back with them as prisoners of war. And so here you have this eastern coalition of kings who has come and defeated the kings of Sodom and other surrounding cities, has taken all the wealth from those cities as their spoils, and has taken the people of those cities as prisoners. And one of those people living in Sodom, as we know, was Lot. And now he's been taken captive. That's where our story sets up. And that's where our story starts leading us to understand some things about following. We've been studying the life of Abraham, and I've called him the first follower because he was the one called by God to follow God from Ur to this promised land. He's the one that God established this beautiful and wonderful covenant with. And Abram, on faith, followed. But what can we learn about following from the events that unfold when, when, when Sodom is defeated by a foreign king and Lot is taken captive and Abram goes to his rescue? What? can we learn about following from this story? Well, the first thing I want you to notice is that followers are concerned about the consequences of their decisions. Followers are concerned about the consequences of their decisions. As you read here in Genesis chapter 14, particularly at verse 11 and 12, you find out that Lot has been taken captive. 
Now, back in Genesis 13, when Lot and Abram, they faced their big decision about what to do about their overcrowding in the land, Lot was given the decision of where he wanted to choose land. And he chose the land in the vicinity of Sodom because it reminded him of that fertile land that they had left in Egypt. Lot's decision was driven by his own desire for prosperity. But Lot didn't adequately weigh the consequences of his decision. When you look at Genesis chapter 13, you find out very quickly that the city of Sodom had a reputation. A reputation for wickedness, a reputation for sin, a reputation for evil. Now, while those qualities do not necessitate or necessarily evoke the uh, war that came upon them, it does show that this isn't the kind of people you really want to be around. But Lot makes the decision to relocate in the direction of Sodom. By the end of chapter 13, we find out that he has pitched his tent as far as Sodom. He is close to Sodom. In the chapter 14, and, and the city is being invaded by foreign enemies, Lot is living inside Sodom. You can see that in Genesis chapter 14, verse 12. He's dwelling in Sodom. These passages reveal that Lot has grown more and more comfortable with the Sodom community despite their wickedness, despite the fact that they were great sinners against God, according to Genesis chapter 13 and verse 13. Lot's decisions were driven by, by selfishness, and, and they were made without really considering what the consequences might be of his decisions. Meanwhile, you've got Abram making the decision to let Lot choose land first because for Abram, their relationship was more important than where he lived. And, and Abram is making decisions based, based on what God has promised to do for Abram, not on what Abram can do for himself. You can see that their process of thinking is very different, and Abram is counting the cost, but Lot is not. It reminds me of what would be written later in Psalm chapter 1, if you look there with me for just a minute, in Psalm chapter 1, where we have the way of the righteous contrasted with the way of the wicked, and here is what is written. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked would not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the righteous is the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. The wicked aren't considering the cost, aren't considering the consequences. The righteous weigh those consequences and consider whether or not what they do can be blessed by God or whether it will be condemned by God. Abram had made that kind of decision as a follower. He had weighed his options, and he had considered what the consequences might be, and he realized after his sojourn to Egypt that he needed to depend on God and God alone, that he, that he needed to trust in this covenant promise that God will be the one to bless him in all that he does instead of trying to figure things out on his own. Lot's not there yet. 
Lot's not counting the cost. Lot's not thinking about the consequences that may come if he chooses to live in this area that is abounding with wickedness. And while the ultimate cost doesn't come for a few more chapters with Lot, the first consequence comes at this point. As he's taken captive because he's living in the realm of a king who is trying to defy other kings. And so, from, for me, when we look at this story and the consequence that Lot endures, we're reminded that followers are concerned about the consequences of their decisions, and they weigh those consequences before they make their decisions. But there's a second thing that stands out to me about this story that relates to followers, and that's this, that followers are not only concerned about their decisions, but followers are concerned about the welfare of other followers. Followers are concerned about the welfare of other followers. What stands out to me in this story is the fact that when Abram learns of Lot's situation, he immediately responds with a rescue operation. He doesn't even think about it. Abram rescued Lot even though Lot's capture was not Abram's fault. Even though Sodom's enemies were not Abram's enemies per se, and even though the battle between the Eastern Coalition and those allies of Sodom did not directly affect Abram. See, if I was Abram, I know what I would do. I would sit there and think, all right, do I really want to get involved with this? I mean, this is Lot's fault, isn't it? Shouldn't he have to deal with his own consequences? Shouldn't I let him learn from his mistakes? Should I really go after him and help him in this situation? What will Lot learn from all of this if I go and rescue him right now? I would be, it would be so easy for me to reason to myself why I shouldn't get involved. Abram does none of that. Abram simply hears the news, he assembles his men, he goes and talks to his allies, and they set out on foot. And they overtake that coalition of kings. And through a surprise nighttime attack that's reminiscent of Gideon's battles, he rescues Lot and the rest of those captured citizens. Abram's rescue of Lot is because Abram cared about Lot. Abram is this follower of God who cared about another follower of God. For all the mistakes that Lot will make in his life, he still repeatedly identified, particularly in the New Testament, as someone who is righteous, as someone who was a follower of God. He spared from the decimation of Sodom and Gomorrah simply because he is, in the eyes of God, someone who is righteous. He may not always make the best decisions, but he was still another follower of God, and for that very reason, Abram's concerned about him. And this isn't the only time Abram's concerned about him. This isn't the only time that Abram is worried about Lot. You can go to Genesis chapter 18, and when the Lord is visiting Abram just before he's going to go check in on what's going on in Sodom, he tells Abraham of his decision that if indeed he finds out Sodom is as bad as he's heard, then he's going to destroy it. And what does Abraham start doing? He starts negotiating. Why? Because he's trying to protect Lot. And he convinces God, or probably more correctly, God allows him to negotiate him down to just 10 individuals, 10 righteous individuals to be found in Sodom. All for the sake of another follower. And we need to recognize the importance of being concerned about one another as followers because the New Testament holds up this expectation. 
You can go to Galatians chapter 6 and look at the first two verses of Galatians chapter 6. Look at the instruction that Paul gives to the church in Galatia as it pertains to being concerned about one another as followers. He says this, Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, if we recognize that one of our brothers or one of our sisters is erring, then we have a responsibility to pursue them, to restore them. This verse is calling on us to be concerned about one another as followers and to help each other as we go about our following. That's what Abram was doing. Also think about this passage. Go to James chapter 5. Look at verse 19 and 20 of James chapter 5. After giving his instructions about prayer and praying for one another and, and, and that sort of concern and that sort of care, James shifts gears a little bit. bit. In James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And James presents corrective action as a heroic endeavor. We often avoid it because we're afraid of, of how someone might react or because we believe it's not any of our business or because we fear what we might put, that we might push the other person away. But don't those fears pale drastically in comparison to saving a soul? See, Abram's concerned about that soul named Lot. Shouldn't we have that same degree of concern for one another because we're mutual followers? Shouldn't we pursue just as diligently as Abram pursued? Shouldn't we care just as deeply as Abram cared? See, followers are concerned not just about the consequences of their choices, but they're also concerned about the welfare of other followers. And there's one more thing followers are concerned about. They're concerned about being pleasing to God. I want you to zero in with me on what happens after Lot, Abram returns from rescuing Lot. Look at verses 17 through 24 in particular of Genesis chapter 14. Let's read that again. After his return from the defeat of Shadolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheveh, that is the king's valley. In verse 18 of Genesis 14, we're told that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And then he said, Let his three allies in Ereshol and memory take their share. 
See, upon his return from that successful rescue operation, Abram is met by two kings. One is the aforementioned king of Sodom, who was handedly defeated by the coalition of kings. The other was the previously unmentioned king of Salem, who was named Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's an interesting fellow because he just shows up out of nowhere. And he's this Canaanite king in the city of Salem, which would later be identified as Jerusalem. And he's this king in a polytheistic culture that is practicing a monotheistic faith. Notice, he's not allied with the wicked kings of the plain, with the the five kings that are are, are a part of the, the king of Sodom's group. He's not numbered among them. He's not mentioned in the story as going to battle. And he's also identified as a priest of God most high in verse 18. And and notice what Melchizedek does. Here's this guy who's the king of a city in Canaan. He's a king of a city in the midst of of polytheism all around him, but he's not focused on those deities. He alone is focused on God most high, a title that throughout Scripture is reserved for Yahweh. And look at what he does. He blesses Abram, and he blesses Abram's God. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, El Elyon. That's the title in Hebrew. A title typically reserved for Yahweh alone. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He acknowledges that God alone owns the world. And he acknowledges that God alone is the reason Abram was successful in his battle. And what that does is it makes Abram realize that Melchizedek serves the same God as him. Melchizedek is serving, is worshiping, is acknowledging the same God that Abram's been following ever since he left Ur. And that's a wake-up call for Abram. He got a wake-up call when he came out of Egypt. He gets another wake-up call here as he's interacting, inter- interacting with the king of Salem. And the king of Salem's visit and the king of Salem's blessing remind Abram who the king of kings really is. That's, Ab- that's evident from the fact that Abram suddenly gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, this is significant because every other time you read about giving a tenth in Scripture, it's associated with giving directly to God. You can go to Genesis chapter 28 and verse 22 and find out that after Jacob, who is Abram's grandson, after Jacob has this dream about a ladder stretching to heaven, he promised to repay God a full tenth of everything that God gave him. You can go into the Mosaic Covenant when Abraham is, is giving the covenant to Israel. He's stated in Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30 that every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, it's the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. It belongs to the Lord is what it's saying. And then when God accused Israel of robbing him in Malachi chapter 3 between verses 8 and 10, he accused them on the grounds that they had failed to tithe, that they had failed to continue the practice of giving him 
that tenth. So after Abram's victorious campaign, he's quickly reminded by his interaction with Melchizedek that the true king reigns in heaven, and it is he that Abram needs to be concerned about pleasing. And that's why Abram gives. That's why Abram gives the first fruits of what he brought back from that rescue operation. And that reminder came at a good time because, as I mentioned, another king came on the scene. His name was Barah, and he was the king of Sodom. He was the king that lost the war that Abram eventually won. And the king of Sodom recognizes that in Abram, he's got a pretty good neighbor now. He's got a neighbor that is powerful. He's got a neighbor that can win wars. He's got a neighbor that would make for a really good ally. And so the king of Sodom, it seems, wants to make an alliance with Abram. And so he makes an offer to Abram that's very magnanimous. He, he offers for Abram to keep all the stuff, to keep all the goods, to keep all the, the possessions and provisions that were taken by that coalition of eastern kings. All Abram would have to give up are the people. You see, because Abram led the, 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 the military that overtook those eastern kings, he had the right to determine how the goods would be dispersed. And so the king of Sodom simply says, hey, if you'll give me back the people who I ruled over, you can keep all the stuff, be more wealthy than you were before. But Abram quickly realized that if he did what the king of Sodom offered, he would be guilty of robbing God, particularly robbing God of the glory that was due God. In other words, if Abram took the stuff then people would be able to say that Abram was a great man, that Abram was a wealthy man, that Abram was a successful man, that Abram was a man to be feared, all because of his partnership with the king of Sodom. And so Abram declined the king of Sodom's offer. And he said this, if you pay attention to verse 22 and 23, he said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High. He uses the same title that Melchizedek used. I lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. In other words, Abram said that he promised God that he would not take any of the spoils so that no other king would get credit for being the source of the blessings in his life. That credit alone belonged to God. Did you notice? Abram apparently anticipated this kind of proposal. He had preemptively taken a pledge. He was prepared for the possibility of someone wanting to make such an offer. And he's in effect saying, I've already chosen my king. My king is God Most High. He alone gets the credit for everything in my life. Now, why is all this important? This is important because the battle to choose who your king is continues today. Until Jesus returns, we will all have to make choices, most often on a daily basis, of who our king is. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24? No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. 
you can't serve both God and money. And even though it's specific to the context of finances, what Jesus is ultimately saying is you can't have more than one master. You can't have more than, more than one who you're devoted to. You can't have more than one king. You've got to choose who your king is going to be. How do you know, how do you determine who your king is? How do you know who you have crowned as king of your life? As we draw this to a close, I think Abram's example here in Genesis chapter 14 gives us two very strong parameters for understanding who is our king. The first is this, you know who or what is your king based on what you fear. You know who or what is your king based on what you fear. Did you notice that Abram was not afraid to go to war with that coalition of five kings? Even though they had won a decisive victory over the king of Sodom and his allies, Abram wasn't afraid to go chase down this guy. Abram wasn't afraid to go after these kings and fight against them. And I think that's because Abram had crowned his king already. You know, fear, fear is the product of competing kingdoms. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were walking with God, there's no mention of them being afraid. Fear didn't enter the picture until after they had entertained the possibility of a different king. Until after they had eaten the fruit which had lured them in because of the deception of the serpent who said, you will be like God. And so in that moment, when they made a choice to pursue a different king, which was themselves, that's when fear entered the picture. And now they're hiding from God. And now they're clothing themselves because of their shame, of their nakedness. See, competing kingdoms produce fear. And because Abram had already chosen his king, he didn't fear the pseudo-kings. He didn't have to be afraid because he knew who was on his side. That's why all throughout Scripture we have this most repeated command, do not be afraid. And it is almost always followed by a declaration from God that I will be with you. I'm reminded of what's written in Psalm chapter 91, verses 9 through 11. It's very fitting for looking at Abram's life here. It's very fitting for understanding the choice of a king. It's very fitting for understanding that your king is crowned, that you can determine who or what you've crowned as your king based on what you fear. Psalm chapter 91, verses 9 through 11 says, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. It's a psalm that is proclaiming God as our refuge, as our source of confidence, as our protector. And all throughout Scripture, isn't that how he's described? If God is Most High, then he reigns over anything that can threaten to harm us. And I think this is how we are to understand the biblical command to give thanks in all circumstances. 
Scripture doesn't tell us to give thanks for all circumstances. It instructs us to give thanks in all circumstances. And we can do that if God is most high. Because He still reigns even over the very things that threaten us. But that's a choice we have to make every day. The choice of who is king. Because fears are abundant. Threats are abundant. And a new pseudo-king shows up all the time with a new threat or a new proposal or a new challenge. We've got to choose who our king is going to be. And the one way we can tell what we've chosen, who or what we've chosen, is by what we fear. We can fear God and keep His commandments, or we can be afraid of anything that threatens us. One other way you can know who or what your king is is based on what you own. You know who or what is your king based on what you own. Did you notice that both Melchizedek in, chapter, in verse 19 and Abram in verse 22 refer to God as the possessor of heaven and earth? That's because they recognize that they really don't own anything, that God is the one who owns everything. You know, there are three basic ways you can obtain ownership. You can obtain ownership through a purchase. When you purchase a piece of property, you receive a deed indicating your ownership of that property. When you purchase a vehicle, you receive a title indicating your ownership of that vehicle. When you purchase some sort of goods, you likely receive a bill of sale or a receipt that indicates your ownership of those items. In such circumstances, ownership is secured through a transaction. You can also obtain ownership through a gift. Ownership can be inherited, passed down, or, or gifted. Such transfer of ownership occurs when a loved one passes away and leaves instructions via a will that declares who is to receive ownership of what is left behind. And such a transfer of ownership also occurs when one individual gives a gift to another during the celebration of a birthday or a holiday or a life-changing event like a wedding or a shower. Ownership can be obtained through a gift. The third way ownership can be obtained is by creating something. This is ownership by origination. If you build a piece of furniture, then you are the owner of that furniture. If you create something that will be shared with the public, then you may need to obtain a patent if it's an invention, a copyright if it's a work of art, a trademark if it's a brand, or, or, or something of that nature to declare your ownership. And such government-issued declarations of ownership protect your creation from being plagiarized. So you can become an owner of something if you purchase it, if it's gifted to you, or if you create it. Based on those definitions of ownership, we have to assert that we are not owners because God owns everything. Everything points back to God's ownership because God did one of three things. He either created it or created the means for you and I to create it. He either gifted it to us or he purchased it for us. Everything traces itself back to God as owner. And the Bible is replete with references to God's ownership. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, the author states that all things exist for him and by him. That's ownership. When Paul addressed the philosophers in Athens, 
He referenced a statue to the unknown God, then proceeded to tell them about the God they did not know and referred to him as the God who made the world and everything in it. Acts chapter 17. See, God's the owner. That means we're just stewards of what he's given us, and stewards understand that everything they have really belongs to somebody else. That's why Abram was so quick to tithe. He was returning to God via Melchizedek the first fruits of what God had blessed him with. I don't know about you, but if I were Abram, I might have said something like, I deserve this blessing. All this stuff is like a bonus to me because I stepped out in faith and rescued Lot, even though I didn't have to. If I were Abram, it would be very easy to think that way. But that's not how Abram, the father of faith, responded here. He told the king of Sodom, basically, you can have everything except God's part. Because God gets prioritized since he's the possessor of heaven and earth. So you can know who or what is your king based on what you fear or based on what you own. The question of the night is who has been crowned king of your life? As you examine yourself, are you your own king? Have you chosen someone else to be your king? Have you chosen something else to be your king? There's only one king of kings. And Abram realized that Abram, knowing that God alone was king, refused to be bought by another king. What about you? Will you, like Abram, choose to live a life who trusts in God for all of your blessings and for all of your protection and for all of your needs? Will you trust in God to be your provider, to be your source of comfort, to be your source of protection? Because God alone is the King of kings. Tonight, if you need to make Him the King of your life, you can do so by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is His risen Son by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe tonight that's the decision you need to make. Whatever your need is this evening, we offer an invitation because we want to make sure that when, before we leave here that we all have asserted who the King of our life is that we have all crowned the right king. So if you need to respond to this invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Yeah.